Hey, if you listen to this podcast week after week, then you will absolutely love my books. There's Travel Light, which basically gives you all of the steps for following your heart. And then there's Knowing Where to Look, which is full of inspirational stories and anecdotes that will help you shift your perspective in the most inspiring way. And for those of you who can't seem to crack the meditation code, grab a copy of Bliss More, How to Succeed in Meditation Without Really Trying, and your meditation practice will never be the same. All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show. I got Steve jobbed from my own incorporation. My own lawyer called me to say, you have to hand in your computer, your BlackBerry, et cetera. And I thought I have $150,000 in debt because I co-signed this loan. I had no income. I had no savings. I had personal debt on my credit cards. And all I had was my BlackBerry, which legally I apparently wasn't even entitled to. So I thought, I know what I can do. I can help women specifically, entrepreneurs specifically help start their businesses online. And I called a friend and said, I'm going to do this. I think we're just going to call them Firestarter Sessions. And I hung out my shingle. And then I had 60 people on my mailing list. And that was enough light for one client. And you know what I had after one client? I had a testimonial. And then on it went. Hey, friends, I want to welcome you back to The Light Watkins Show. If this is your first time here, I interview ordinary people just like you and me who've taken extraordinary leaps of faith, often in the direction of their path, their purpose, or their mission. And in doing so, they have been able to positively impact the lives of many others who've either heard about their story or who've witnessed them in action or who have directly benefited from their work. So today, I'm in conversation with one of the wisest humans that I've ever met. Her name is Danielle Laporte. She is a true luminary who has lived a lot of life. And we talk about a lot of that in our interview. She was a teenage runaway who skipped college, but she ended up working at a think tank in Washington, D.C., with some very smart people. And that was just one of a series of jobs that she had, including bartending, working in a restaurant. She worked at the body shop for a while. She eventually started her own PR company after working as a publicist for a lot of personal development people. And then she had a startup, which she was eventually fired from her own startup. And that led her to fly around the country helping other female entrepreneurs start their businesses. And then that experience dovetailed into her first book, which was called The Fire Starter Sessions. And then that book led to The Desire Map, and then another book, The White Hot Truth. And then most recently, she has published How to Be Loving. And in the process, she's published a ton of journals and card decks, etc. And Danielle is also a member of Oprah's Super Soul 100. She's a producer of many meditation kits and online programs for spiritual support through her heart-centered membership community, which exists all around the world. And she has a podcast, which is called With Love, Danielle. This is a solo show that ranks in the iTunes top 10 for wellness. And if you go to her website or if you Google her name, you'll see that Danielle is pretty much everywhere. And it's always fascinating to me to go back and connect the dots and see how every experience, good and bad, 
played a key role in setting her up for the next milestone along her spiritual journey. And I'm convinced that this is true for all of us, which is why I started this podcast, because I really wanted to share these stories to show you real life examples of people who have overcome all kinds of obstacles in order to find their path and how upon closer inspection, that so-called obstacle that we were cursing was actually a key part of our path. So in preparation for the interview, I like to listen to a lot of the other interviews that a guest has done, and I didn't hear a whole lot about her backstory, so I wanted to make sure that we take a good amount of time to go into the backstory so you can have an even greater appreciation for the wisdom that she shares later in the interview. Then we do a deep dive on some of the spiritual issues that she's been writing about and speaking about, and they include a real-world working definition for love and what it means to think with love, which was a concept that I really liked. We talked about how to know when you're in the middle of a spiritual lesson. You can rest assured right now you're in the middle of maybe you know a dozen spiritual lessons. <laughs> when you know what that is and how to sort of decipher it, then you can be more intentional about moving through it. And she talks about why we shouldn't seek truth just in books, even though she's written some profound books or I've written profound books, but really the truth comes through experience. We talk about spiritual bypassing, which is a term that people get accused of a lot in the wellness community. You know, you're spiritually bypassing. So maybe you've been spiritually bypassing before. I know I've done some spiritual bypassing in my life, and it's good to know when you're doing that and how to not do that. We talk about the anatomy of healing and how to know when you're going in the right direction in terms of your own personal healing. We talked about the first step in the path to forgiveness, which I guarantee is not what you think it is. I thought that was so brilliant and everybody who hears it is going to be able to relate to that. Oh, and then she also opens up about her love life and she reveals the name of a surprise person who she once saw on a dating app. So all in all, I really think you're going to connect with this conversation and find it enlightening and her perspective to be relatable, informative, and full of actionable insights and wisdom. So sit back, relax, get ready to enjoy this delightful conversation into the life journey of Miss Danielle Laporte. Danielle, thank you so much for coming on to my podcast. I don't know you personally. I don't think we've met before. I'm sure we've been in the same spaces and know a lot of the same people, but I'm honored to be in conversation with you and having an opportunity to unpack your story. Feels like a long time coming. I was really looking forward to this. Yeah. Awesome. 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 All right, cool. So I always like to start off in childhood. There are a couple of Nuggets that I have dug up from your childhood that I'd love to just oh my goodness hear okay. a little bit more about. <laughs> okay, what do you got? So you basically were born in Detroit. I mean, let's be honest. <laughs> That's true. But you know what? When you're from Windsor, Ontario, and you grow up across in Detroit, you really feel half American. Right. So when I moved to the west coast of Canada, and it was so like Canadian patriotic, I really felt like. It was the first time I really felt Canadian because, you know, you grow up listening to Riff Radio and you shop at whatever mall. And yeah, so I feel like half Detroitan. 
Is that even? Well, I, w- I was on your social media and you had used some Frank Ocean song on one of your posts. And I was like, okay, she's, she's got a little soul in her oh, that's yeah. not necessarily Canadian. But in any case, you grew up, parents very young, obviously had you right after high school. You grew up very Catholic. And Danielle was not your your first name. So I'm just curious, like, talk a little bit about what was the vibe like in your house? What did they call you? What was your favorite activity? You've been digging. I love it. Okay. Let's address the name thing. So my legal name is Veronica Danielle Laporte, but I've always been called Danielle. So it's like this family tradition. You get some other first name, but they call you your second name. You know, so that was pretty simple there. And my mom didn't want me to get called Vicky. <laughs> so growing <laughs> up, I'm mostly called Danny. And I've always known, like, if there was ever a bill collector calling me or I was in trouble, when I answered the phone, they asked for Veronica. And I was just like, no, she's not here. The vibe was my parents didn't get pregnant after school, after high school. They got pregnant in high school. So my mom dropped out. My mom got her BA in psychology at St. Clair College with me in diapers sitting in the back of the class with her. So I got toilet trained at St. Clair College. And the vibe was very hippie, progressive, always was in Catholic school. That was just part of it. You just went to Catholic school. I think there was a lot of weed. There was some infidelity. There were a lot of parties. There was a lot of hockey. That's my upbringing, pretty much. Only Mm -hmm. time. And when you were 13, you read your first, what we call occult book, which a friend's mom gave you. Which book was that? And why did it have such a profound effect on you? It it was this book series. There's even a Ouija board on the cover (laughs) called Messages from Michael. Mm -hmm. And it it was all this channeling. And that led me to the first New Age bookstore that I'd ever been to. And the friend's mom actually had this light system with different colors for each chakra. So she would sit under the red light and then she'd sit under the orange light. She was amazing. I loved, I wanted to be here. She was like Farrah Fawcett, new ager. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And how did that vibe with your mom? And I'm sure you were excited to, enough to go back and share some of the things you were learning with. Would you oh. tell her about the Ramtha books and all the lessons you were learning? About <laughs> totally. Dan- well, Dan- on the Dan- other Dan- side, <laughs> actually, because all that friend was in Michigan, you know, on my side of the border. My mom was reading Louise Hay and Wayne Dyer, like when Wayne came out with erogenous zones and Tibetan Book of the Dead. And we were going to, she was actually involved in a channeling circle, Mm -hmm. which was pretty, you know, now that I look at it, pretty untoward. And my mom was like really out there. She was doing bioenergetics. She was getting her master's in psychology. So there were times where I was actually her guinea pig for her child psychology thesis. So, you know, she would keep this diary, like, you know, ask Danielle to take a bath. Danielle throws herself down on the kitchen floor and cries, doesn't want to take the bath, you know, give Danielle a gold star, like all these things. But there was a lot of, a lot of new age material coming from my mother in my house. And then, you know, total contrast to that is my dad was a hockey player and a real athlete and very, you know, a lot of eros and bravado and charisma. And I internalized the discomfort of those contrasts for a long time. And I can see how that really affected me. Like just having parents who were so radically different. And I don't know if it was the seed of something or if it just 
was a reflection of a real internal battle I've had for most of my life with what I labeled as my human side and I labeled as my holy side. How did that shape your idea of success? First of all, this is prior to you turning 16, so as a teenager. And I know you you kind of thought of social work and poetry and dance and all that as like some fascinations as a young person. What did you see for yourself in terms of a career or did you see yourself going to college like your mom or or becoming like an athlete like your dad? Like what was your idea of what you wanted to do with your life? Definitely that not age? athletic. Yeah. And I grew up in a very, my dad's side of the family, very athletic and always felt I was, you know, I did not want the soccer ball for Christmas. I wanted the encyclopedia set and the rosary. What I saw was microphones. Mm. I saw some form of broadcasting. This is like before there was WordPress and there was no blogging, but I just like, I'm going to speak and acting clearly wasn't going to be it for me. I had interests in fashion design. Then that turned into like, maybe I'll go to film school. And then I got swept just on this other path. And here we are, Light Watkins. <laughs> well, you mentioned, I don't know how much you talk about this, but you mentioned that you ran away from home at oh, yeah. 16. So yeah. can you give us a little, just a summary of maybe what led to that? And then a little bit of the montage of you as a bartending and waitressing. Like, how did you get to the first, you call it your real job job, being the executive director at the think tank in DC. Like, how does that happen without a college education <laughs> right. degree? Yeah. Yes. I left home really young. My mom was living on the other side of the country. My mm. dad and I weren't seeing eye to eye and everything is very healed and really cool now. And I had braces and I needed to pay for those. So I got a job waitressing at the yacht club. Like there's another theme here, just like feeling on the outside. I was the poor girl who had to pay for her own braces, the runaway with all, you know, mm-hmm. you know, serving meals to the rich kids. And that I wanted to go to fashion design school. And even then I still had this, I wanted to radicalize that industry. It was like, I was going to do nude fashion shows to just make this statement about the fashion industry, but still have these really cool clothing. We didn't even talk about organic cotton and stuff in those days. (laughs) And I just had to work. That was it. I just had to work. So I bartended and I was a nanny and I cleaned houses and I got into retail and the retail job that changed everything for me. It was really, I feel like I was firmly placed on this path that has led here. So I started working for the body shop. And these were the days when the body shop founded by this amazing woman who since passed, Anita Roddick. This is the first time we heard about terms like conscious capitalism and social responsibility. So I was raising money through peppermint foot cream to go work at an orphanage in Romania as part of my job. This was an amazing place for me to express myself. It's like, my desire to serve really got fostered there. And I could see how commerce could be used in this way. And then I moved to the States and that's where things really started to cook. And I got into publicity. I didn't know I was a publicist, but a friend was like, Hey, you're good with words. Now why didn't you call the radio show and get me on? And that led into, I had created my own communications agency. 
it became really well known for promoting futurists, you know, people who were advising the World Economic Forum. And then I got involved as executive director of this think tank in Washington, D.C. And every week, every week, you know, you had a cocktail party or some kind of meeting and two things happened without fail. One, I had to sign an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement. It was ridiculous. And secondly, somebody would ask me what my alma mater was. Didn't even know what that meant. And (laughs) that was a great experience in learning to like leverage what I thought was a weakness because I could see people started to, they had a perception like, wow, she's in DC. She's Canadian in DC running a think tank full of PhDs and other great brainiacs and weirdos maybe she's got something here because she only just went to high school. And so I started, instead of hiding that, it became my cocktail line opener. Mm-hmm. You've also said that you got a degree in faking it till you make it right. Yeah. And then in the evenings you're reading Rilke and Jay Krishnamurti and all these wonderful spiritual authors. So were you more of like a spiritual seeker who was posing as this executive director or yeah. were you just dabbling in the spiritual stuff and sort of developing your operating point of view in the world at that age. Hey there, really quickly. Have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, the happinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you, which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, you'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to thehappinessinsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, thehappinessinsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass, which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's thehappinessinsiders.com. The code is happy. All right, back to the episode. I have never dabbled. I have been fully interested, committed to the search. Mm -hmm. And anything that is not that has felt foe. And that was part of the inner conflict of being there as I, you know, realized I wasn't that interested in the future. I was interested in <laughs> presence. <laughs> wasn't that interested in white papers about weapons of mass destruction. I was inter- interested in really cultivating peace, but still at that time, peace did not seem very sexy, but what seemed sexy was all the fringy stuff that would now be called conspiracy But it was things like, you know, what is zero point energy and love got to do with each other? And what's going on with aliens at the White House and the Pentagon? And 
those, you know, and the brotherhood societies and, and I, you know, then came Blavatsky and then came Krishna, you know, you can't do Blavatsky without doing Krishnamurti. And then you get into Krishnamurti and Krishnamurti is the gateway drug for Alan Watts. And then there's Yogananda and then you're in it. And the great experience, there were so many great things about Washington, D.C. and Think Tank days, was my judgment that got knocked out of me of, you know, I met colonels who were meditators. It blew Mm. my mind. Yeah. Mm. Also, I mean, you know, you were maybe idolizing some of these people you're reading, right? Because they're not alive anymore and they've left this amazing body of work and whatnot. But then you start working in publicity with personal development people who are very famous. And what was that juxtaposition like being able to see it up close in real time with people who were talking about the attributes of a conscious marriage, but then they have this crazy divorce (laughs) happening in the background and all these other things? What did you learn from that experience? Mm-hmm. Well, the people I worked for, like, you know, got paid by, were all in integrity. There mm-hmm. wasn't any division there, but you def- I definitely got exposed to a lot of stuff. And it's shocking is what it is. It's that is the word like disillusionment process. You know, you just like, wow, he ain't all that. And it really helped me become more discerning really helped me get clear on like who I was going to work for. Mm. It really helped me actually on my path with that was around the same time where it became clear for me, like I was not going to walk the path of guru and disciple. You know, I'd come across this really powerful, wealthy guy who was a devotee of what's his name. I've been to his ashram, big Afro orange robes. I'm blanking on it. Sai Baba. Yeah. Yeah. Sai Baba. Sai Baba. Okay. So wealthy guy into Sai Baba and he had these Sai Baba altars all throughout his house. And I was naive in that. Like I didn't get the dynamics of that relationship. I didn't get the healing capacity and the darkness capacity, you know, that avatar on the pedestal, but I just knew deeply, like, this is not for me. I am not giving that up and over. That was defining. I still have a guru I'd give it up for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And did you have any inclination at that time that you would one day be considered people's teacher? Maybe some people call you their guru or thought leader in the wellness space and, and, and be able to manifest this, this vision that you've had since you were young of being in front of these microphones. Was that in your periphery at the time? No, no. I'm comfortable with thought leader. I've just recently gotten comfortable with See, I can't, it's even you have a hard time saying it, you know, spiritual teacher. No, I teach about some spiritual concepts that are lived experience. That's as far as I can go. (laughs) Were you journaling at the time? Were you, I know you said you've done a lot of therapy, but was that all happening at that time? Not a journaler. I take notes. I take, this is what I do. This is my function of journaling is notes from therapy. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like a learning diary. But I'm not a kind of, I don't get my internal process out through journaling. Okay. So you had a company that you kind of co-founded and you end up getting fired from, from your own company that co-founded. But yeah. in any case, that led you to these fire starter 
groups, yeah. which I found I thought was a really interesting initiative. Can you talk a little bit about what that was and, and how it came about? So I got Steve jobbed from my own incorporation. So mm-hmm. raised a bunch of money. And the dudes who the venture capitalists, as opposed to angel investors, which is an oxymoron, <laughs> they said, we're going to give you the money if you hire this person to run the thing. And I was like, sure, totally. I'll hire that person. And that all went south. So I got constructively dismissed. The company declared insolvency shortly after I left because it's just very karmic and not cool. And I left with, so the lawyer that I had hired to paper all of our shareholder certificate, you know, the deal, my own lawyer called me to say, you have to hand in your computer, your BlackBerry, et cetera. And I thought I have $150,000 in debt because I co-signed this loan. I had no income. I had no savings. I had personal debt on my credit cards. And all I had left was my BlackBerry, which legally I apparently wasn't even entitled to. So I thought, I know what I can do. I can help women specifically, entrepreneurs specifically help start their businesses online. And I called a friend and said, I'm going to do this. I think we're just going to call them Firestarter Sessions. And I hung out my shingle. And then I had 60 people on my mailing list. And that was enough light for one client. And you know what I had after one client? I had a testimonial. And then on it went until six-month waiting list. And I was high-priced and worth it. I mean, 90 minutes with me, you got your ideas. You got a map. Never called myself a coach. I'm not a coach. I was a strategist. I just, and that was based on, well, I'd never, I mean, I'd never even gone to university, let alone take a coaching certification program. But I just wanted, when I was in the thick of things with work, I just wanted someone I respected to tell me what they would do if they were in my situation. Don't coach me through this. I'm going to take responsibility for coming up with my own choices. What would you do? And so that's the role I played with other people. If I were just starting this and I looked and sounded and offered what you offered, this is what I'd do. Take what you want, leave the rest. When you went to those 16 cities on that sort of tour where you were basically answering the call from anyone who was who was asking, who was funding that? Were you paying for that and or were they paying? Yeah. So what I would do is I would say, listen, you know, Jane in Idaho, if you can get me 20 people in your living room, I will pay for my own flight. We'll charge like 150 bucks. You feed them. I'll pay for my own hotel room. So I was leaving those events with like $1,700 in my pocket after, you know, hauling my tail out there for three days. It's crazy. But at the end of it, I had a book called the Firestarter Sessions. And I knew a lot about business. And I was really, I don't know, I have a tricky, I'm not really into the word confidence. I think there's so much shadow to confidence, but I had that lived experience. I had acumen. I knew I could help you get from, you know, A to Z if you had a laptop and an idea. Mm -hmm. So with that book, you talked about how the publisher basically kind of forced you to promote it in a certain way that didn't feel in alignment with who you were. And you, you learned some lessons about that, about not putting yourself in those positions to try to achieve the bestseller list. Oh, yes. Yeah. No, the relationship with the publisher was super cool. It's just, you know, we all wanted to win the New York Times game. 
which I've just come out of, you know, I'm just mm-hmm. my latest book, how to be loving. We were gunning for it again. And you make a decision at the beginning of those campaigns. It's like, am I going to run this relay race or am I going to be a sprinter? And it's a very, very different way of moving and marketing. And it's exhausting. The New York times way of going about things is even if you hit, you're going to be exhausted when you get there. And sometimes mm-hmm. it's worth it. Sometimes it isn't. Depends who you talk to. But that led you to the idea for the desire map. So talk about that connection. Well, that connection was, you know, desire map started on a rainy New Year's Eve night and I had a baby and I wrote out all my goals and they were really like pedestrian goals. Like I want a new kitchen table. I want to get Hawaii. I want to pay off the debt. I wanted a book deal. Not inspired. And I just started to write some inspiring things and they all ended up being feelings. And so that question on a post-it note, how do I want to feel? And a handful of other post-it notes of those feelings I desired at that time became the center of my career for almost a decade. I built a lot off of that post-it note. I listened to a few of your interviews. What a lot of interviewers commented about was that by the time you got around to writing the white hot truth that you were sounding much more authentic than I guess they had experienced you prior to that. And I'm just curious, A, was that your experience? Because I think it's sometimes hard to tell if I'm faking it until I make it in whatever regard, right? As a teacher, as a mentor to people and sort of blazing this path for other women like me or, you know, other black people like me or whatever your, your thing is. Yeah. Do you feel it? And, and B, what do you attribute that to? I think what people sense is, I mean, I think everybody's being authentic every moment. This is just the best you can do. This is the most real I can be. This is my best version of fake, whatever it is. The evolution for me, I mean, I would hope that from book to book, I feel more accessible. I'm more palpably loving. The evolution for me has been, you know, from Desire Map to White Hot Truth was that edge was off. I was becoming less brazen. I was becoming more loving, more aware of my own divine nature. And when you're, you know, my experience is, you know, more aware of the love that you are, then I became less mouthy. I swore less. I didn't have as much of a, like, really just that hungry ghost need to be seen. And I'm still on that trajectory Mm -hmm. of, you know, just the revelation that I am beloved, that you are beloved. And then, you know, what's to fight about when you can touch that space? You know, I can't hold that vibration 24-7, but, you know, I have those, the awareness is expanding into the belovedness. So I'm Mm -hmm. way less pushy. So you said that How to Be Loving was five years in the making since your last book. Why now? Why this book now? And I've heard other people ask you this question, but I think it's a good question to just get on the record. Who did you write it for? Who was the avatar? Who was the avatar reader that you would imagine reading this book? Well, I always try and impress my deepest, most sophisticated, raunchy friends. <laughs> and I feel like if, and they're all over busy internet ballers, you know, and if I can get her to read something, if I can just get her to read it and go, 
wow, I'm going to look at my relationship differently, or I'm going to change my tone, my inner tone, then that is success for me. I think, I mean, this is like an entrepreneurial short tangent, but I have two customer avatars. One is on the path and haggard and really committed. She's done the workshops. She has listened to the podcast and she may or may not have had her meltdown yet, her breakdown, but she's in. And the other is really, really curious. The other, you know, customer of mine, reader of mine, listener is looking, saying, I want some of that. What's over, what's happening over there with these women who have, they're meditating and they're making money and losing money and getting divorced and they're radiant. Mm-hmm. So my first impressions from the book, from reading it, were it's a book that could be read linearly, but also could be opened up pretty much anywhere in the book. And you will come across a chapter about something that's not necessarily tied to what you read in the previous chapters, but it all kind of connects together like Legos. And I really like that about it. In fact, that's one of the ways that I've been formatting my books recently is choose your own adventure, open to any page, and you'll find something useful there. And your book is, in my impression, it's kind of like a, I don't know, it's a good way to understand what it means to be a spiritually mature person. It's kind of almost like a handbook for becoming spiritually mature. And the one thing that I was glad that you included near the end of the book were the practices, because I think a lot of books, you know, they talk about the power of now, not to disparage. <laughs> yeah, I love Eckhart's, Eckhart's work, great, but, yeah. but they don't talk about the power of how as much. Mm-hmm. And you put a lot of emphasis on the how, because I think it's important to take it beyond the intellect and into actual embodiment, integration, and practice. And so I want to just talk about some of the concepts that you wrote about, because a lot of them are, they seem counterintuitive on the surface, but actually when you really think about it deeply, it's all pretty elegantly articulated. So love, what does it mean? What is your understanding of this word that I don't think we have enough words for? We kind of try to jam everything into this one word to mean so many different things. How are you thinking about love when you talk about how to be loving? The ultimate inclusiveness. And that starts with oneself and all Mm. the fragmented selves. So you love your shadow and you love your light. And, And I mean love. I mean, reverence. So I'm very interested in helping myself. You know, I've been successful with this in some regards and helping others move from ground zero tolerance to reverence. For me, that's the work. So that tolerance being, I'm going to put up with it, but there's this agitation underneath the surface. And then we move into acceptance, which is an embracing, which is, you know, definitely moving up the spiral, but like active love, where you're really finding the light and the density. (laughs) And, you know, you're in this space, like, is it all of God? It has to be. It has to be all of God. And if that's the case, then the shadow is more than just useful. It's more than just useful. Like, there's a, a gifting in all of the stuff that most of us spend most of our lives trying to push away, mm-hmm. but you have to look at it. You have to stop pushing it away to see the gift. 
And that is, I think that's how we become spiritually mature. Mm-hmm. That is how to be loving. Yeah. And you say spirituality is essentially the practice of thinking with love. Yeah. Can you just break that down for us? What yeah. does it mean to think with love? Uh, we have to want to. It's aspirational for all of us, I think. I believe that thoughts do create your reality, that the mind is this numinous, powerful, incredible tool to use for ill or for good. So you want to have a loving life, a compassionate life, a radiant life. You have to think loving, compassionate, radiant thoughts. And how are you going to do that? Well, there's lots of technologies to do that, but it really has to begin with the commitment. Commitment. I want to embody love. Whatever your language around that is, I want to know God. I want to know truth with a capital T. Like you've got to want to know. And I've this is one thing I've really I've become aware of in the last year or so. Like the mystics that I gravitate towards the most are all gentle of nature. There's a real sweetness to them. And they talk about this. That single-minded, such an interesting phrase, right? You know, single-minded devotion. You've got to want to find out. And then use all the practices. Use the meditation and the eating consciously, etc., to bolster your devotion. I love that. You talk about a lot of subjects, letting go, forgiveness, healing, etc., I'm going to deviate a little bit right now. Then we're going to go back to the content. But in your process of putting this book together, because a large part of writing is just organizing your thoughts. And I don't know about you, but when I'm writing, I've written four books now. Mm -hmm. I don't really know how it's going to come together as I'm going through the process. In fact, I describe it as cutting the grass at Central Park with a push mower. (laughs) No one can help you (laughs) have to get it all done yourself. But being a student of, you know, spiritual books, channeled books, et cetera. Would you say this book was channeled? Would you say that you had some divine help in how you organized the book? And was there any sort of conscious awareness of, I'm going to put forgiveness after letting go, or I need to put healing first, or like, how did you sequence these subjects? I am not a channeler, (laughs) not a medium. I have no interest in being a conduit for disembodied spirits or entities. So I just, there's that. And I don't need it to grow my brand. And there's a place for that. And there's a giftedness around that, that I honor and respect. And I'm very, very cautious with. So you can, you can hear my. For the record. Yeah, we got it. For the record. Yeah. And my job is to. Just keep aligning myself with certain frequencies. Like I want to align myself with love and I do all the practices to do that. And I feel that I have free will. I feel like we all have free will in this lifetime and every lifetime. And I also feel like ah, I am being used. I am a pawn, but I believe that I'm being used by something really lovely. Mm-hmm. And I'm on team, I'm on team love and team love. This is a thing, you know, pick your side, pick the side that includes everybody. So team love includes the dark and the light. How do I decide what goes where? 
and even some of these principles. I've been working with an energy healer for about seven years, the same person who I feel very dedicated to, who if I were still Catholic, I would say this person is my spiritual director, my priest. And I will, my seva is committed to this relationship. So a lot of my learning is informed by this particular woman who lives a very monastic life. And we have this kind of quiet agreement around practices. So this is not just me. This is every mystic I've ever resonated with. And then the me part is divine love should be the first out of the list of seven virtues. And you know what? I think people don't want to hear so much about what's required for resilience. So we're going to put that at the end. <laughs> and then we're going to end on the high note of radiance because everybody wants the shine. It's, you know, so there's just some like marketing intelligence that I bake in. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. All right. So can we talk about healing a little bit? Because yeah. you you sort of equate life in and of itself as a healing process and that we come here with a certain spiritual agenda to work through some of our old patterns. And I love the example that you gave of, you know, being born into a family with an absent father. And then, you know, your sister steals your boyfriend. And then you get into a business partnership where the Mm -hmm. partner steals the limelight from you. And you say that that is all about you. It's all happening for you so that you can heal that aspect of yourself and learn how to love. So can you talk a little bit more about that healing aspect of life and why is it so hard for us to accept that when we hear something like that and we're going through one of those experiences? Oh, why is it so hard to accept that we are creating a lot of that? Or that it's happening for us instead of to us. Oh yeah. Cause it's painful. <laughs> it's just hard. It just is. It's the challenge. Like, you know, it's running Ironman. How can you believe in those moments of like extreme endurance that this is actually a good thing for you. It just, it boggles the mind. And I think that's the point. It's meant to boggle your mind so that you get to that state of beingness. You get to that, you know, that heart space that is Mm -hmm. beyond the thought and it's beyond all the methodologies and all that. Is that an answer? Yeah. What I also would like to know is how do you know, well, A, is there such thing as a finite you reach a finite point of healing or if not, how do you know you are going in the right direction of this whole healing process? Yeah. I think healing is about being more conscious, which is about being more loving, which is about correct identification. You get to know who you really are, not fake self, not ego self. You get to, you start identifying as an energy being as divinity, as love itself. You start identifying as being connected to each other, to something greater than yourself. You start leaving room for mystery. You start becoming aware that there's so much more going on underneath the surface of most people's actions and words. So it's, uh, you know, as Ram Das used the phrase so often, I am loving awareness. And I love the double entendre of that, of like, I'm loving awareness and I am loving awareness itself, right? I think that's the journey to healing. Why is it hard? Because we're perpetuating a lie. We're, we're indoctrinated into lie after lie. Every social system from 
organize crime, to organize religion, to the medical system, to education, to how even, you know, conventional relationships are set up is telling us that we are anything but divine, that the power is outside of ourselves, that, you know, we're dividing everything into worthy and unworthy. It's the biggest lie of all to even ask that question. That's why it's hard. We're conditioned. So using that same scenario that you outline in your book, just to kind of workshop this a little bit further, Yeah. what's a next step? Let's say, okay, I recognize now that I'm in this pattern of, you know, abandonment or absentee, dealing with absent whatever in my life. What do I do next? Do I have a conversation with my partner who's still in limelight? Do I leave the boyfriend, you know, or just cut off the sister who stole my boyfriend? Like, oh, I know there's not a one size fits yeah, yeah, all, yeah. but I'm just curious if we can workshop this in any direction that would indicate what progress may look like on a real world day-to-day basis. Yeah. You take responsibility and you clean up the mess on your side of the street. Like I'm 50% of the dynamic, even mm-hmm. if there's abuse involved, like I've chosen to be here. Yep. I did manifest it. This doesn't mean that you don't have deep, extensive compassion for how challenging things are or your, the challenges of your family of origin or your lot in life. Like, you know, the response to all of that is compassion, but you're showing up in a particular way. Your thoughts are vastly, you leave lots of room for mystery, vastly creating your reality and all of your power, all of your power to get what you really want in life, what your heart wants is in that revelation. This is spiritual maturity. I am responsible for the tone of my life. I get to choose how I feel about whatever happens. I get to choose what I feel about whatever happens. I can't control the outcome. There's so many things I can't control, but I can control what I feel and I can control what I identify as. So am I identifying as the victim or as the solution? Am I identifying as something someone called me 20 years ago? Am I identifying with all the constraints of my religion? Or am I identifying as free, sovereign, connected, gifted, capable, beloved, energy, light itself? Big difference. So when you're in the predicament, the boyfriend's cheated and you realize I had something to do with this. Are you going to be your scared self, your angry self, or are you going to identify as something that is much more vast and has so many tools to draw on to get through that situation? So, you know, we get asked in these predicaments, should I stay? Should I go? Should I quit? How should I vote? Should I get the chemotherapy? Should I do alternative healing, all of those, those different paths don't matter as much as your commitment to create conditions of healing for yourself. So like what's healing for you? Let's go back to the definition of healing. Healing is expansion. Healing is seeing things clearly. Healing is you respond to life. You don't react. Healing is being conscious of why you say certain things. Okay. If you've got that going on, then maybe you stay in the relationship. Maybe you go. What's going to have you expand? Hmm. So really, it's, it's about awareness. It's about consciousness, bringing 
yourself into the present moment. And something you wrote in White House Truth that I think ties to this, as you said, that first step in forgiving is admitting that you don't want to forgive someone, which I thought was just amazing. It's yeah. so true, though, because yeah. it has to start somewhere, right? Yeah, it's hard. I'm resisting. I really want to be right. I might even want that person to suffer. I don't want to do this. And then you soften. Why do you soften? Because all of that truth telling, all of that self intimacy, that's an act of love. And that act of love helps all of that chitter chatter relax. And then you get to the next level. You go, oh, I'm resisting forgiving. Just admit it. That's love. That's love. Love admits it. And then you give it up to God, to Holy Spirit, to your guardian angel, whatever you see is there for you and say, I need a little bit of help with this. And I think the help comes in. I think your soul will help you think more loving thoughts, which will get you to a state of forgiveness. And you said that nothing is going to leave you until you thoroughly love it and bless it. Yes. Talk about Look, forget trying to ghost everybody who hurt you. Forget trying to overcome your fear. You know, all the, let's go with relationships. I've heard you talk very eloquently about relationships before. Like, you know, you want to get the feelings you have of remorse, regret, heartache, rejection, whatever the negative stuff is around a breakup. What motivational culture tells us to do is like, get over that stuff, move on. Of course you want to move on. Of course, it's, it's the right intention. You want to be free. You don't want to be held back by that heartbreak anymore. You want to expand, stop trying to push it away because all that painful morass, all those crap feelings you don't want to feel. Do you know what they want? Your attention. Just love them. Make room for them. Like... All pain is asking for attention. Attention is just your loving awareness. Yeah. So, you know, I had a breakup, feeling pretty obsessy about it. Could have done this, should have done that. He, me, all of it. Blocked him on social media. Because every time I saw him looking at a post of mine and then liking it, I just like, you don't get to do that anymore. You don't have access to that anymore, which is kind of like, what? Like, you know, quarter million people can like your stuff, but dude can't like it anymore (laughs) because it's actually, you know, a little act of intimacy from dude who we decided to part ways. Mm. In that moment for me, that's actually a condition of healing that I created. Because if my nervous system gets jacked every time he comes in and does the little like thing, then I'm, I'm honor bound to myself to help my nervous system regulate. So for a while, the most loving thing to do for me is the block. And then when I'm a little stronger, I can unblock and a little stronger, a little more aware of how capable and loving and forgiving and gentle I am. Cause that's everybody's true nature. Then like we could actually go have tea and then I might actually go to his wedding. I don't know if he's getting married or not, but like, you know, that's the sequence, I think. I think this dovetails nicely into the concept of spiritual bypassing, which I think is could be kind of confusing even for people who consider themselves to be spiritual. So can you talk a little bit about what do we get wrong about spiritual bypassing when it comes to these kinds of everyday real world situations? Like there's someone who 
I know that we're all connected and that, you know, he's a really my spiritual teacher coming into this life to help me work through these issues. At the same time, I, I want to block it. Him. Yeah, I attracted it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So where do you draw the line between blocking and muting someone and understanding <laughs> all of that? Most of us will not experience this kind of parenting. But if we did, the most loving, unconditional parent you could fantasize about. They love you no matter what. You are always welcome. They anticipate every need. It's just really unconditional, agape kind of love. What would they want for you? That's it. That's it. That mama, that cosmic father might say, sweetheart, just block them for a couple of weeks. I just I really want you to be protected. I want you to sleep at night. You just need to have just one peaceful day. Just, you know, don't just... It's okay. That's the spiritual thing to do. Mm-hmm. And then the next day, because we evolve and we grow and healing isn't linear, then that most loving angelic force might say, okay, you can do this, engage. And that's been really a key lesson for me over the last couple of years. Well, the non-linearity of healing, but like what worked for me for years, a particular mantra, a particular meditation, a particular supplement a particular relationship or a way of doing business. Like it really worked. Like I became a more loving person. I became more healthy in a bunch of ways. It's not going to work indefinitely. We grow, we outgrow our spiritual practices. I mean, this is why, you know, I'm very curious about what you have to say about spiritual minimalism, because I think that's where we get to. I think that's where, you know, the lack of love is not loving our humanness, not seeing the spirituality of being human, how divine, how powerful that is. And so we do all these things to one more meditation. Like I'll tell you how I used to meditate. I mean, my, my meditation now is very active. Like it's very much a doing. So I have all these, you know, I have a pretty contemplative life. So I get the stillness, but I used to be like, I'm going to do a different meditation every day. And then I'm going to do like the Olympics of meditation. Like if I meditate for 90 minutes uninterrupted, I must be more spiritual. And it was actually creating some havoc for me, a lot of anxiety. And one more esoteric lesson, one more book. And now, you know what? Same meditation every day, 20, 30 minutes for months at a time. Mm -hmm. Much better person because of it. And you also talk about how it needs to get out of the intellect. Like you can read all the books, maybe even even including your book, but (laughs) if you are constantly seeking the truth as an intellectual pursuit, that gets in the way of the truth itself. Let's unpack that for a second. Well, I think wisdom isn't an intellectual pursuit. Like I have met people, they were unlearned individuals. They had not traveled And they knew how life worked. And I felt calm and loved in their presence. They're just like salty. And, you know, one of the concepts that really upset me when I was a little Catholic girl was this the whole practice of going to convert people and the missions, you know, and all the conquest and death that came with that. But I remember saying, I don't know if it was to a priest or but some elder, like, so you're saying that, you know, you don't get into heaven if you're not Christian. Well, that's the party line. So, yes. So what about all the people 
who live on different continents who never come to church. That's their bad luck. And I just thought, this is rigged. This is not right. I don't know where I was going with that, but what's the next question, Mike? Oh, we were talking about truth, seeking truth. And <laughs> right. There we go. That's where it's I was. an intellectual pursuit. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like a lot of us, without realizing it, are trying to buy our way out of fear. Right. And I think this is the basis of the material pursuit. So we're trying to achieve a state of success to the point where we can control everything that happens around us. We never have to deal with fear. And that we all know that there's something that's going to happen when we get sick or, you know, somebody we love will get sick or whatever. But you say that fear is not something that we should overcome. And that is the basis of spiritual minimalism is cultivating a state of fulfillment inside that no matter what happens around you, you know that you're going to be good. You know, life is happening for you. You can trust life and, and these kinds of things. And so if you want to have the experience for a season of your life where you don't have a lot of material possessions, that's great. It's as good as living in a mansion and having a yacht and driving in a Bentley somewhere. So let's talk a little bit about that. Why is fear, in your perspective, something that is not to be overcome? Because you created it. Why would you try to extricate or even invalidate something you made? It's of you. It's of your mind. It's from you. I call these things like they are your mind babies and they want your attention. The trick in this space of crushing it and productivity and spiritual maximalism or spiritual materialism, we do these things to overcome our fear and we crush it and we slay it and we hack it. And the adrenaline rush tells us that that was the right thing to do. We get that high. It's like, ah, I jumped, I launched, I charted. We just betrayed a part of ourselves that just needed some attention. It doesn't mean you can't go get the things. You can still have the yacht. Go get the yacht if you want the yacht. It's okay. But just don't tell your fear to shut up because you're telling a part of yourself to shut up. And if you're telling one part of yourself to shut up, you were repressing the other parts of yourself that need to sing. It's like, if you don't deal with the pain, you're never going to experience your full joy. If you don't deal with the fear and all that gnarly stuff, you're never going to know how powerful you really are. And here's the irony. Everybody, you know, so many of us who are trying to overcome that stuff are doing it in the name of becoming more powerful. It's the antithesis. It's actually killing us. And that stuff will come out. I mean, you can watch, you see enough people just in general life. It's not even in the self-help space. But there's enough of these stories now, particularly in our, quote, industry, where, you know, people come of this age where they're just like, I was crushing it. And then the diagnosis came. Mm -hmm. I was killing it. You know, even just the words, terrible. I was killing it. And then life leveled me with a bankruptcy. It's like, you're going to get it. You're going to get it. Meaning you're going to get the lesson of stop the repressing, start honoring. And then you become, everybody wants to be the king. Everybody wants to be the queen. Everybody wants to find their king and their queen. Yeah. You know what kings and queens do? They honor everybody in the kingdom. And that includes all of your ego stuff. loved how much self-awareness you you wrote your book with and you know you would oftentimes 
have a disclaimer saying this is an over oversimplification <laughs> what I'm about to say, but some, something you said that I thought was really profound was that that you don't have much to say about goals other than the fact that they're ridiculous. <laughs> is that kind of why what you just talked about? Yeah, I mean, Desire Map was about goal setting, but really it was a subversive way of saying goals aren't all that. I think where I'm at now is it depends on the goals. Mm-hmm. I personally want to have heart-centered goals. I want to have goals that are inclusive and really truly virtuous, not intellectual virtuous. And I also know that setting goals and not meeting them sucks. And I can see, you know, my goals that come out of my ego and proving and my goals that really come from a more loving, conscious place. And this is what I've noticed. And this has been fairly recent. I noticed that the things that I accomplish, you know, the goals I do hit that are heart centered. It's like, I was thinking about my happiness and everybody else's happiness. They come with some extra benefits and the benefit is peace. Like I sleep well. It's like, I, you know, I don't hit the goal and go, Oh, I got to go crush something else. I'm just like, Oh, I felt really connected to humanity by nailing that <laughs> versus the ego goals are like, oh God, we got it. I got to get on to the next thing. Or we didn't get it. Who's to blame? Mm-hmm. Very different, very disruptive. And that ties to something else you talk about, which I thought was a really practical way of thinking about wisdom and an idea. You know, and I, is this idea wise or is this idea not as wise as it could be? Mm-hmm. And you use the metric of inclusivity. Yeah. I think, yeah, this is the, the line. Bad idea. You're just looking out for you and the people you want to look out for. Good idea. You're just asking the question, how is this going to benefit people? Well, you could even push it. How could it really benefit a lot of people? Or how is it going to cause harm? Mm-hmm. And I think wisdom, real wisdom, takes everybody into consideration. And it doesn't mean there isn't room for justice, but you're at least considering everybody in your decisions. Speaking of which, you've had a little bit of relationship drama (laughs) throughout your life. You're with a partner now. And one of my followers, one of my Instagram followers, when I posted that open question, what should I ask Danielle, was asking, how did you find love again and how is it going? (laughs) I don't know if they're asking if you got on a dating app or what, but I thought I'd just (laughs) ask you and see where it went. Yeah, Everyone wants to know how. How'd you do it? (laughs) It's going beautifully. We're still together. We're going on two years. The honeymoon is over and it's so exciting. Once all those illusions start to get a little crispy and you go, well, okay, this is who I'm really dealing with. And this is who I am. I love it. I love this period of like, oh, it's really getting real. The important part to this story is that I really let go, like honestly, for reals, I really let go of the desire to be partnered. So for a long time, it ran me. Every time I left the house, I just like, is he going to be at the cafe? Am I going to meet the one in the airport? I was on all the apps. I saw you on one of those apps. And when the world started to wobble, I let a lot go. Like I thought I might let my life go, not in a suicidal way, but am I really going to be here? And I just put it down and I just thought, okay, if I'm really for this love thing and that something higher is going to direct my course. Then why don't I just give it all up and let something higher direct my course? And 
I looked at all the love I have in my life and just thought, you know, if my dharma, I don't believe in destiny, but if my way is just to be this kind of <laughs> like a contemporary nun slash, you know, slightly sultry, I will do that. And the desire came back, but it looked differently when I came back. And I don't think it would have looked different. I don't think I would have met who is my person unless I'd really just been like, I'm good. I am so good. And I am so going to just trust this ride. But when the desire came back, there was something I gambled on myself. And this was a real move for me, which was, you know, because I've lived in such a punishment paradigm for so long, this kind of Catholic hangover, I will burn my karma. I will earn my divine favor for me to really own what felt like a a truly heart-centered desire, like a beloved relationship will expand me. A beloved relationship will help me be of greater service. And even that doesn't matter. It's what I aspire for. Mm -hmm. I am going to claim, I'm not even going to ask whether I'm worthy or not. It's here and it's not going away. My humanness is not leaving the building. I dared that even if this punishing God we're going to say, it's not very spiritual. I was going to pay the price. I was going to gamble on myself. And I did. And I said in that moment, I went like many months desirelessness with around the beloved relationship. And mm -hmm. I just said, okay, I'm going for it. So let's get really clear. Make him local. I'm going to do this while the world is falling apart in terms of health, where no one's really meeting and doing anything. And let's get it on by the end of the year metaphorically speaking and figuratively speaking. And you know how the story goes. It was like, mm -hmm. I got back on the app and the next date for brunch was my guy. Hmm. All right. So I'm going to oversimplify now. Byron Katie has mentioned something about the fact that, you know, her husband or her partner, when he triggers her, that's the perfect thing for her to experience in that moment in time. Eckhart talks about you should just get in any relationship because that's where you do the real spiritual work. So again, kind of going back to this, this concept of bypassing in, in a relationship, it's like you get to look at yourself very up close through the projection of this other person. And once it gets crispy and once the honeymoon period is over, how do you know, is this right for me? Or cause I know I'm here to do some work in this relationship. So how do I, how do I know when, I mean, obviously physical abuse is unacceptable and, you know, all of that, but just in a regular situation where you're getting into an argument, you know, every couple of days, like, how do you know, based on how you fight, based on how you make up, like, what's your metric for, Hey, this is, this is going in the right direction. Yeah. Am I becoming a more loving person? And am I included in that? So, you know, when I have doubts or my man and I, you know, there's the, the bumps we call them. I think, wow, you know, I could expand here. I could actually become more loving. First of all, I could practice the law of reflection. So whatever is driving me crazy about him is some glaring example. I need to look at that inside myself. Thank you. And I've actually, I'm in a place where we are in a, there's a rhythm of gratitude for all of that. I just feel more expanded. So I stay. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the expansion comes from, I can be simultaneously upset and dissatisfied. I cannot be having all my needs met that day and 
feel more loving, feel more connected to life. Even when someone got to take a break because there's an argument, I feel closer to, I feel sweeter. That's what it is. I feel sweeter. What is thought crashing? Did I write that? Thought cra- oh, the thought crash. Yeah, that's a good one. Thought crashing is the negative thinking looping. And it's like, you know, I can feel so one with the universe. I can feel like such a great partner. Well, let's, we'll continue with the relationship context, right? It's like, I am so loving. I am patient. I am praising. I am honoring, you know, and then just one thing. And I can be like, I cannot believe I signed up for this relationship. It can just, (laughs) it's like a thing. It's ridiculous. That's the thought crash. And I go, this is the moment where you realize, wow, that thought is not serving the relationship. Like I've got an intention. So what's the dedication? Loving kindness, joy, beauty, whatever your values are in your relationship. Okay. That thought crash doesn't serve that. See the thought, no criticism, choose another thought. And the other thought that's more beneficial is usually this is a reflection. I take responsibility. That just helped me grow. Actually, thank you. I'm wise enough. So there's no spiritual bypass here in that. Like, I'm not playing dumb and saying like, oh, you don't need to grow. You're a reflection of me. So you're off the hook. No, no, no. I am wise. I am insightful. I am lucidly thinking. I can see where someone needs to grow. I'm going to hold that vision lovingly on behalf of the relationship. So, you know, babe. You might want to look at that for you and for me. And I have faith that you're going to see it clearly. And if you don't, I'm going to decide if I'm still going to be here or not. And back to the vision. I want to be here. Love that. So just in winding things down now, and you wrote about this year review exercise that you do presumably every year. I'm just curious what that looks like. Is that an actual period of time you set aside or is it something you just, it's kind of ongoing, you take out a sheet of paper and pen or how how does that work? Mm -hmm. If someone wants to do it, how would they do that? Yeah. Well, you know how it goes. You live it and then you turn it into a book. So there's a program for that, that I wrote. It's called Free and Clear. The genesis of this is I had a business meeting that did not turn out the way I wanted it to. And my whole, I thought my whole life was going to collapse that afternoon. And I'm in a pub somewhere in California. And my friend who was with me just literally pushed my pencil across the table and said, write down what has worked for you this year. And then I just never stopped. I turned it into this whole thing. So my year in review is without looking at my calendar to look at what actually happened, I just remember what happened. Seeing what you remember about your past year is so illustrative of something. Like if you don't look at your calendar, you look at what you remember and you're like, wow, there's a theme here. Most of what I'm remembering are relationship moments. And then you realize, wow, I totally forgot that I launched that thing or that I made that first X thousands of dollars on the thing, or I forgot about that heartbreak. So it's like, look at what you remember, then look at your calendar and then look at how you felt about what happened on your calendar. Like what was your state of consciousness around those things? And then you go from there. And what do you want more of? Like, what are you taking forward into the coming year? What do you want to build on? And what are you just going to integrate? And it's compost. Hmm. Yeah. 
So you have a very popular website, 5 million people visit it a month. You send out a daily truth bomb. You got this community, the heart-centered membership community. So you're doing a lot of things. And I'm curious, how are you thinking about success these days, having <laughs> achieved so much and been married? You're a mom and all these things. Yeah. What's success look like for you now? Simplicity. Simplicity and impact. So I want to be more well than ever, more healthy, and have more of a, I don't love the word impact or influence now, but contribute to more healing than ever. And that's a tricky dance. That's a tricky dance. So more, I would never use the term free time. My time is mine. I am free. More nourishment, simplicity as a spiritual practice, and creating conditions of healing. You know, my membership is a place people feel related to. I have a leadership program. You know, we have 400 people who are talking about virtue and resilience and loving kindness in huge accounting firms and in yoga studios. I want to create a place for them to just come to the well, hear about similar struggles and similar victories on the path of being loving. And aside from being a mom, what life experience or achievement are you most proud of? I'm still here and I'm not bitter. Mm. I'm here and I am gentle. Mm. I love that. And if anyone was going to pair one of your previous books with How to Be Loved, because I, I thought How to Be Loved was great, but it doesn't go, get into a lot about your personal story, which I think mm. could be very valuable to have that context to those principles. Mm. And I have my idea of which book would be the best one to pair it with, but I'm curious to hear what you think. Why Hot Truth? Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, White Hot Truth is all about my spiritual antics. <laughs> it's about, you know, leaving in the middle of the night from the workshop. <laughs> it's about self-help and self-criticism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Have you read any good books that just really rocked your world? Like oh, yes. Adya Shanti, who mm -hmm. someone I really resonate with. His book, Emptiness Dancing. Mm -hmm. I just tuck it in. And anything by Pema Chodron. Your uh, work reminds me of hers a lot. Mm, oh, I, I feel I, like I, you're like a modern Pema Chodron. Huge compliment. Thank you. <laughs> well, she's so she's very accessible. Mm -hmm. She's very aspirational for me. Her book, Wisdom of No Escape, changed the way I looked at life. Mm -hmm. Really helped me lean in. And those are my go-tos. Yeah, she talks a lot about how things come together and fall apart. And you talk about things coming and going. And there's really no, you know, there's, that's just a cycle that we experience in life. I think that's a really beautiful way to look at it. So in any case, Danielle, I want to thank you so much for your contribution to this wellness space, the spiritual conversation. I love how simply you put things, one line that stood out a lot when I was reading Firestarter was you were talking about that experience of being fired from your own company and, and kind of how you felt like a fraud. And I guess there was some interview that didn't happen and you were so happy because then your lion ass wouldn't have to say anything about, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, don't have to fake that one today. What you yeah. didn't believe. I just, I love that. I love the realness and the transparency. And I think that anyone listening to this interview who just resonates with your message is going to get so much value out of going back and reading not just How to Be Loved, but also the books that came before that. So anyway, 
I thank you for for showing up for your life in such a way that allowed you to be able to articulate these experiences in such a beautiful way. And I look forward to crossing paths with you at some point soon. And if I ever see you on a dating app again, I'll be sure to (laughs) wipe in the right direction. (laughs) You are so thorough and it is such a delight. And I am truly looking forward to receiving your book when it's out April. April. Yeah. I don't know the date exactly, but thank you very much. I'll send you a copy. Because what you're about is a kind of medicine that I think we need. Thank you. Thank you. It's an honor and a pleasure to have this connection. So thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to my interview with Danielle Laporte. Her new book, How to Be Loving, is available everywhere books are sold. And for more inspirational wisdom, you can follow Danielle on social media at Danielle Laporte. And let me spell it for you. D-A-N-I-E-L-L-E-L-A-P-O-R-T-E. And of course, I'll drop links to everything else she and I discussed in the show notes on my website, lightwatkins.com slash show, where if you're listening to this again for the first time, you should take some time to go through the archives and just see if you recognize any of those other names, such as Ed Milet, Ava DuVernay, Saul Williams, Chef Marcus Samuelson, author Stephen Pressfield, poet Young Pueblo. There's so many people who have shared their origin story. And again, listening to these stories, you'll find them very inspiring because it's usually not what you think. And they usually had to go through some crazy obstacles and challenges in order to become the person who they've become today. So you can also search by subject if you want to just see stories of people who've overcome financial challenges because you're going through one or people who've gone through health challenges because you're going through one or people who've taken a leap of faith because you're thinking of taking one and you'll be able to find the inspiration that you need in real time by just going to lightwatkins.com slash show. You can also watch these interviews on YouTube. If you go to YouTube and search Light Watkins Podcast, you'll see a playlist if you want to put a face to a voice. And you can also listen to the unedited versions of my podcast a day early before they get released. And to do that, you'd have to join my Happiness Insiders online community. You'll also get access to my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate, which means 8 out of 10 people who start that challenge finish the challenge 108 days later as a daily meditator. So it's a really great way to introduce yourself to meditation if you have not started your daily practice or to kickstart a daily practice for yourself. And I'm always trying to bring you conversations with the best guests possible. And one thing that makes the job of securing top guests so much easier from my end is if they see listeners liking and rating the show. Because when somebody invites me to come onto their podcast, one of the first things I do is I go to their show on iTunes and I look at the ratings and reviews and I'm sure that other guests also do it with my show as well. So you can help me help you by taking 10 seconds to rate and review the show. Your review may be the one that gets the guest who's thinking of coming on to say yes to my invitation. You never know. And here's how you leave a review very quickly. It just takes 10 seconds. Look at your phone or your device, click on the Apple podcast app, 
go to the name of the podcast, scroll down past the previous episodes. You'll see the five blank stars. If you like what we're doing here, tap the star all the way on the right. You've left the rating. If you feel inspired to go the extra mile, write a couple of lines about what you appreciate about the podcast or which episodes you recommend a new listener start with. And that will help us get to the top of the search listings again, as well as to show the potential guests that people are actually enjoying what we're doing and getting a lot of value out of it. Thank you very much for that. And otherwise, I look forward to hopefully seeing you back here next week with another story about someone just like us, me and you, taking a leap of faith in the direction of their purpose. And until then, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart, and keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you very much and have a great day. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.